Please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage for this morning, uh, for the third and final week in a row, is 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. And let's begin our time by reading this passage together. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. There are tremendous consequences to sexual sin. In fact, tremendous is probably an understatement. At a personal level, it can rob a person of everything they have. King Solomon warns in Proverbs 5-7 that it can lead to a loss of reputation, a loss of one's fortune, even death. And that's above and beyond the more run-of-the-mill consequences that we may associate with sexual immorality, the loss of one's marriage and with it, perhaps, even their own family. However, the truth is that this is really just touching the tip of the iceberg. The cost of sexual immorality is high, personally. But what we tend to overlook is the corporate cost, meaning we tend to overlook the effect that it has on other people. How serious is sexual sin? We'll consider that it was on account of sexual immorality introduced to Israel by Balak under the advice of Balaam, the son of Baor, that over 24,000 Israelites died in a plague sent by the Lord. Consider as well that it was on account of sexual temptation that the great King David, a man of such faith that he's described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart, that this man not only conspired to kill one of his most loyal companions but that he also set off a chain reaction of perpetual civil war in Israel as a result. In the words of the prophet Nathan, as he confronted David over that sin, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, he says, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your prophet or to be your wife. Think about that. All the personal strife that David experienced later in life, even the division of the kingdom into northern and southern kingdoms after the death of his son Solomon, it was all rooted in David's inability to control his sexual urges. But it goes even farther. Consider, for instance, that God not only warned the people of Israel not to marry foreign wives, since they would turn the hearts of the children away from the Lord their God. 
But consider as well that he warned the kings of Israel specifically not to multiply wives for themselves, quote, lest his heart turn away in Deuteronomy 17, 17. And then consider that this is precisely what King Solomon did during the height of his reign, according to 1 Kings 11, accumulating for himself over 700 wives and 300 concubines, and how this set off another chain of reaction, chain reaction of idolatry in the kings of both Israel and Judah in subsequent generations, and how the author of 1 and 2 Kings says that it was on account of this idolatry and the nation's leadership that first Israel and then Judah were sent into exile on account of their disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant in 2 Kings 17. Consider all of this, and I think you get the picture. There's a ripple effect to sexual sin. It doesn't just affect the one who commits sexual sin, but sometimes tens, sometimes hundreds, or even thousands of people connected with that individual. I think this is the part of sexual sin that's often overlooked. You consider what the scripture says, for instance, about the importance of children receiving instruction from their parents, that that spiritual instruction is something that's passed down from one generation to the next, and now you add adultery to that equation, and the divorce that follows, and the children who not only have been ripped away from their father, for instance, perhaps on account of his sexual sin, but who may also now have a mother that is having to work long hours to try to support them on her own with little time or energy left at the end of the day to tend to their spiritual development. And we're talking about a generational impact here. In fact, I think this is largely what we've seen during the past 50 years since the sexual revolution of the 1960s. We've watched the foundational building block of society which is the family, be ripped apart with the rise of divorce and premarital sex. And the result is a society that is suddenly very, very confused about even the most basic moral values. Sexual sin is not a little deal. Its consequences are incredibly dramatic. And yet, do you know what? There's something even more serious about sexual sin than all of this. Or at least something more serious about it when it's committed by the Christian. And that's the dishonor that it brings to Jesus Christ. Of course, all sexual sin dishonors God, whether it's performed by a Christian or not. That's why God condemns it as sin. It runs contrary to his nature and contrary to his purposes for mankind. Uh, Contrary to the role that sex was to play in mankind. But when it's committed by the Christian, it's doubly so. Since when the Christian commits this sin, they not only do so bearing the name of Christ, but they do so with the body that's been redeemed by Christ and for Christ. This was Paul's point as recently as 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. The problem with the Christian going to the prostitute, he explains, is that Christ has redeemed their body. That's what the resurrection is proof of. It's proof of the fact that Christ has been raised bodily, that he possesses an actual body, and so we too will one day be raised with him bodily by virtue of the union that we enjoy with him. Our bodies have been redeemed by Christ. They are members of Christ, Paul explains. And so whenever the Christian takes their body, 
and joins it to a prostitute, they take that which has been redeemed both by and for Christ and place it into the service of a prostitute instead. Again, this is the really heinous thing about sexual sin. I know it may not seem like it. I think it's sometimes hard for us to grasp the seriousness of the problem for the name of God to be dishonored. Our minds have been so corrupted by sin that it's nearly impossible for us to grasp the weight of his glory. But friends, listen, there's a reason why man will spend eternity in hell on account of his sin. And that's all sin, of course, not just sexual sin, but he suffers in hell for all sin, including sexual sin. And the reason is because dishonoring the name of God is that serious. It's that heinous. If you were watching the news this week, then you got a front row seat as to how all this transpires, how all this works together. Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University in Lynchburg, West Virginia, the largest Christian university in the United States. It came out that he was involved in a sex scandal. The details are still a little hazy. What's openly acknowledged by everyone is that at the very least his wife had an affair with a much younger man. What's less clear is how long it went on and the degree to which Falwell knew about the affair. The other man, Giancarlo Granada, claims it took place for years and with Falwell's consent. For his part, Falwell claims it was brief, that it took place without his knowledge and that his wife repented long ago. He says that actually Granada has been trying to extort them over the affair for some time. Either way, either as a part of the arrangement that the Falwells had made with Granada by mutual consent or in in an attempt to hush up the affair, Falwell became financially entangled with Granada for a number of years. Uh, The two went in together on the purchase of a youth hostel in Miami. Falwell provided the funding. Granada was given a share of the business in exchange for managing it. And now this past week, Granada finally came forward and blew the lid off the whole thing, claiming that he's become disgruntled over this business arrangement. Just a few days ago, Falwell was forced to resign from his position as president of Liberty University. So he's lost his position. He's lost his prestige. It's all exactly as the Proverbs warns, save for the loss of life and the loss of wealth. In fact, oddly enough, instead of losing his wealth, Falwell actually became enriched by the whole episode. And that's because the powers that be at liberty decided that at this point, it would be so prohibitive to the health of the university to maintain their ties with him that they would rather pay him a severance package worth over $10 million than allow him to continue in his role as president any longer. Think about that. That's $10 million being lost by the university. $10 million being paid in part by students and their families, mind you, as well as university donors, all on account of this affair. And on top of it all, the very worst of it is that you and I are hearing about it. This is making national headlines. One of the most prominent Christian leaders in the country has, fair or unfair, right or wrong, been labeled as an absolute hypocrite. 
This is what the world sees in all of this. Christians were already seen as self-righteous hypocrites in the eyes of many. The world already suspected that we like to go around condemning the sexual choices of others while at the same time engaging in our own kinds of sexual misbehavior in secret. And that suspicion has just been confirmed in the eyes of many. To them, we're nothing more than rank hypocrites whose message is not only unworthy of their attention, but which is actually harmful to our society. God is not only being dishonored in this, but Satan is using this to blind the minds of the unbelieving. This is all incredibly, incredibly serious. And again, why? Why is this going on? It's all because of the Falwell's inability to control their sexual urges. If what Falwell is saying is true, if what Jerry Falwell is saying is true, personally, I tell you, I find a bit suspect, but if what he's saying is true, then just one brief affair, one, maybe two acts of indiscretion, was enough to do all of this damage. In light of this, I think you can certainly see why Solomon would implore his son in Proverbs 5, 15 through 23. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your, your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of great folly he is led astray. This is Solomon's answer to adultery. In Proverbs 5 through 7, it's how he tells his son to control his sexual urges. He says, find your satisfaction in your own wife. Take delight in her. Because if you don't, he warns, you'll ruin yourself. You'll do tremendous damage. We find the Apostle Paul offering this exact same counsel over here in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. We've covered this over the past couple of weeks together in this passage. We've seen that there are these two different kinds of thoughts that have developed in Corinth in Paul's absence regarding the nature of sexual sin, both of which actually seem to be rooted in a shared perception of the body. The general thinking goes that the body is essentially bad, uh, the body is passing away. Uh, that's what these two groups have in common. They both seem to agree that our bodily existence is essentially inferior to this coming spiritual existence that they think will take place in Christ. And one group is responding to this by saying, therefore, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. You can eat what you want. You can have sex whenever you want and with whomever you want doesn't really matter in the end because all those things you're just doing with your body and that's a part of the old order to things it's no longer who we are or what we will be in Christ 
The other group, however, is saying, no, you've got it wrong. It's actually because the body is bad and passing away that you need to stop indulging its cravings. They're saying, you're right, it is a part of the old order of things. It is no longer who we are or what we will be in Christ. But that's exactly why we need to stop indulging it. And they're expressing this in part by not engaging in any kind of sexual relations, not even with her own spouse. As Paul is watching all this transpire, he says to the first group, well, first of all, you've got it completely wrong. Actually, what you do with the body does matter because your body has been redeemed by Christ. And then he turns around to the second group and he says, and just so you know, this means that sex is not bad. And what you need to understand is that by withholding yourself from your spouse, you're actually exposing them to sexual temptation. You'll recall that as Paul answered the first of these two groups, uh, that he spoke about the unprofitability of sexual immorality. He said, while yes, there was a sense in which Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cover their sin, but that didn't mean that they shouldn't engage in sexual immorality since, he explained, sexual immorality isn't profitable for the Christian. It's not good. It's not wise. This second group is the one that's more apt to come to that kind of a conclusion. While the first group sees no point in fighting against the urges of the body, this one does. They see that the body is bad, and they probably see it's bad precisely because it urges them to lead, to, to go into these kinds of troubles that we've been talking about here this morning. What Paul tells this group is that it's actually because of these urges that they need not to abstain from sex, but to engage in it in a way that is not immoral, in a way that does not bring dishonor to Christ, which they do whenever they engage in sexual relationship with their own spouse. He even warns them that if they don't do this, then it may tempt their spouse to engage in the very sort of activities that they're trying to avoid with their abstinence. And this would be unprofitable for their spouse. Indeed, I, I think we can say that it would be unprofitable not only for their spouse, but based off of what we've talked about here this morning, it would even be unprofitable for themselves, for their spouse to get caught up in this, and of course for Jesus Christ. There's nothing good that's going to come out of that arrangement. Only bad, only harm, only destruction. So this has been Paul's counsel for sexual immorality thus far in this passage. Again, it mirrors Solomon's instructions. He sees the temptation that Christians may experience with respect to sexual immorality, and his answer is to say, verse 2, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, as we've discussed this passage thus far, the focus has really been on the withholding spouse in this arrangement. We've been zeroing in on the one who is reluctant to engage in sex with their spouse. And as I've explained already, that's not to assign blame. It's not necessarily to put pressure on them and say, you know, if your spouse falls into sexual sin, it's your fault. Rather, our focus has been there because that's where Paul's focus is in this passage. Again, he's responding to those who've written to him, verse 1, saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is the withholding party that's writing this. 
and they're probably writing to Paul expecting him to back up their position and perhaps even explain to their partners while it's actually, why it's actually a very good thing that they don't have sex. Paul's answering that assertion. And so his focus has been on them as he's tried to explain to them what's wrong with this line of thinking. What I want to do now this week is spend some time looking at what this passage has to say to the one who wants to have sex. Once again, there are tremendous consequences to sexual immorality. It can not only ruin the life of the one who engages in it, but it can seriously hurt the ones they love and even dishonor the name of God. It's been on the basis of this thought that Paul has encouraged those who might be reluctant to have sex with their spouse to engage in sexual relations as a way of loving their spouse and helping them to avoid sexual sin. But what now about the one who wants to have sex? How do they need to approach this subject? Just like last week, I think it can be summarized in two exhortations. And the first exhortation is this. Number one, recognize that sexuality is not an inherent component to your happiness. You need to recognize that sexuality is not an inherent component to your happiness. Or to say it even more simply, you don't need sex, period. You don't need it. As we've interacted with this passage, I've tried to be mindful of how the world may have already affected your thinking on this subject. You might even remember the illustration I used back at the beginning of our time in this text about the pastor whose son came home from baseball practice one day, one day asking him what sex was. And when the pastor asked him why he wanted to know, his son said, well, because Timmy from the baseball team told me he was going to explain it to me at practice next week. And the pastor, of course, realized I've got to have a talk with my son here soon uh, because someone's going to tell him about sex. And I sure don't want it to be Timmy. Well, this is one area where I think it's very possible that Timmy has gotten to you first. And if so, if you think about sex in the way that Timmy thinks about it, then you're probably going to twist this passage into something very ugly and perhaps even attempt to use it in a way that Paul never intended. The world tends to treat sex as if it's a need. Not a physical need, necessarily, but an emotional or psychological one. Something that you can't be completely happy without. Now, you might think that that's a bit of an overstatement, but I really don't think it is. Earlier this morning, for instance, I mentioned the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And while I think you could say that perhaps the original thought behind that movement was that sex is a good that we have no reason to deny, meaning perhaps it's not a need, but it certainly isn't anything we should worry about either. I think it's fair to say that as time has gone on, that perspective has either shifted or at least the real feelings behind it have come out. And that's the idea that sex is a need, that it's something that we can't be happy without. This attitude is perhaps most evident whenever society speaks about homosexuality. The thinking goes that to say homosexuality is a sin is to ask a person to deny something that is fundamentally essential about themselves and to effectively deny them of any hope of finding lasting happiness or contentment in this life. 
But while that may be the most obvious example of this type of thinking, it's certainly not the only one. The whole notion, for instance, that couples really should engage in premarital sex, not just that they can do so, but that they should do so for the health of the relationship, which actually seems to be more and more of a popular sentiment, that's all built on this idea that sex is a fundamental component to marital happiness, that a marriage can really cannot be happy or healthy unless a couple is sexually compatible. So the world does tend to present this as kind of a need. And I don't think that should surprise us, since the Scripture speaks of sexual sin as idolatry. Meaning, whenever we engage in sexual sin, whenever we choose to indulge our desires instead of submit ourselves to God's commands on this issue, we're treating sex as an object of worship. We're saying it's so important that we can't live without it, that it's so much better than God, so much more fulfilling, so much more rewarding, that we'll even sacrifice our relationship with God in order to have it. To quote Ephesians 5, 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul says that covetousness, specifically sexual covetousness, is idolatry. And if you want to understand why the sexually immoral will not enter the kingdom of heaven, I mean, after all, people like to say, it's not hurting anyone. Why is it such a big deal, right? Well, guys, here's your answer. This is why it's such a big deal. It's not necessarily always about the harm it inflicts on other people. It's that sexual, uh, sexually immoral people worship sex over God. They sincerely believe that the pleasures found in sex are superior to the joy that's found in knowing God. And just so you know, the world doesn't even try to hide this perspective on sex. You see it play out every time you see someone say something like, well, if Christians say this about sex, then I guess I'm not a Christian because I think that's wrong. The whole idea is that belief in or obedience to God is contingent upon, it's pursuant to their sexual desires. Sex comes first, and then if God doesn't get in the way of that, then maybe they'll acknowledge and obey him. This is why they won't enter into heaven. It's not a harm issue. It's a worship issue. They worship sex, not God, and so they will not enter into heaven because the whole point of heaven is the worship of God. It's both why we're redeemed and the source of our joy in heaven. So there's really nothing surprising about this for the world to think and preach that sex is a need. After all, they don't worship God, they reject him. The problem is that because Timmy thinks this way, and because he speaks so openly and constantly about sex in this way, that Christians will then therefore begin to think this way as well, believing that this is just how it is with sex, that sex really is a need. And once that happens, the married Christian is going to do either one of two things. If they're in a sexually inactive or frustrating relationship. Either they'll do just exactly what Paul is warning the Corinthians about here. Meaning they'll express their idolatry, perhaps through an affair, perhaps even through a divorce. Basically, they'll disobey God's commands and break their covenant with their spouse in order to have their sexual needs fulfilled. 
Or, and unfortunately this has happened far, far too often, they'll take this passage and twist it into a club to hit their spouse over the head with as they demand sex. They'll say, look, Paul says right here, you don't have authority over your body. Your body is supposed to belong to me. You're supposed to give me my conjugal rights. And basically use this passage to pressure and coerce their spouse into sex. For reasons that we began to see last week, which I'm actually going to explain again in just a moment, that's not what Paul is attempting to say in this passage. That's actually the exact opposite of Paul's intent here. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that to use this passage in this way qualifies as spiritual abuse based on the definition for abuse that we discussed a couple of weeks ago in Home Fellowship Group. And it's ugly, and it dishonors the name of Christ, and it's sin. So if you're the partner who wants to have sex and you want to avoid the dangers of sexual immorality, then this is where you really need to begin. You need to begin by disassociating yourself from this very worldly mindset that sex is a need. Acknowledge that that's a lie. And then recognize that according to the Bible, sex is not a need. It's not an inherent component to our happiness. It's a gift. It's a gift to be enjoyed freely and with thankfulness, but it's not a need. I think you see this concept come out at two different points in this passage. The first is with the use of this word self-control in verse 5. When Paul says that couples may elect to refrain from sex by mutual agreement in order to devote themselves to prayer, but even then only for a limited period of time, quote, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The implication seems to be that we really ought to be able to maintain self-control. But the Christian should be able to have this desire while not giving in to this temptation, but that at the same time they should make sex a priority in the relationship so that their attempts to at self-control aren't made any harder. Point being, self-control may be made easier or harder, depending on a couple's physical relationship, but it certainly isn't dependent on the help of a spouse. A Christian can maintain self-control even without the help of a spouse, Sex isn't a need in this sense. In fact, if you jump down to, into the next section of this passage, verses 8 and 9, this even seems to be the implication when Paul says that if a single person is not exercising self-control, then they should marry, quote, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The implication is that apart from marriage, the single person is not only able to exercise self-control, but they're obligated to. They are to burn with passion rather than give in to their sexual desires. Again, sex is not a need. It's not something that's owed to us. We can live without it. That's not to say that it's always an easy existence for the one who desires it, but it is possible. They can control themselves. The second point at which this idea comes out is in verse 7. When Paul refers to his own singleness, saying... I wish that all were as I myself am, meaning I wish that all could be single like me, based off of what he says down in verse 8. I wish that all were uh, uh, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. 
What's interesting about that verse is not only the use of this word charisma, a gift, which carries the connotation of something given to someone freely rather than under compulsion. Charisma coming from the Greek word charis, which means grace. But in this context, Paul is clearly implying that God has even endowed some people with a special ability to be happy apart from sex, Paul himself being one of those people. So not only is sex something that is given from God, not something that's owed, but quite clearly it's more than possible for a person to live without it and still be happy. If you're the spouse that wants to have sex and your husband or wife is withholding, I think you need to know this for two reasons. First, you need to know this so that you're not tempted either to blame your spouse for your sexual failures or to use their sexual hesitation as an excuse to justify your sin. Again, the very thing that Paul is concerned about in this passage is that by the one partner's withholding, that the other partner will be opened up to sexual temptation. It's very easy for the Christian trapped in the throes of lust to take this to mean that their battle with sexual temptation is really their spouse's fault. That if only they weren't so self-centered, then they wouldn't have this struggle. And then they either become angry with their spouse, believing that they're doing some wrong against them by withholding themselves, thus creating emotional distance in the relationship. Or they'll even use this passage as an excuse to justify their own sexual immorality. Again, that's what Paul is trying to avoid here. He's trying to avoid sexual immorality. It's very easy to say to yourself, look, Paul exhorts husbands and wives to have sex in order to avoid sexual sin. So if my partner then withholds and I fall, it's not my fault. I can't help myself. If they wanted me to stay pure, then they would have had sex with me. It's very easy to think that. And then use that to give yourself permission to justify the cravings of your flesh. Listen, you can't do that. It's evident from this passage that Paul clearly believes that the Christian can and should exercise self-control in this area. And so you can't use this passage to justify your sin. And for that matter, neither can you use it to say that your spouse owes you sex. Essentially, if you're in any way looking at this passage like sex is a need then you're looking at it wrongly. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's letting Christian spouses know that they can help their spouse in their fight against sin. They can ease the struggle. But by that, he's not implying that sexual sin is then justified if that help doesn't come. It's just the opposite, right? The whole point is that if the spouse doesn't help, then their partner has no other recourse and must simply burn in their desires. So if you're the sexually eager spouse, please don't misunderstand this point. Make this point clear. Whether your spouse has sex with you or not, you're still responsible to control yourself. You can't use this passage to excuse your sexual sin. Neither can you use it to coerce or manipulate your spouse by blaming them for your sexual failures. If you fall, there's only one person who's responsible for it, and that's you. The second reason you need to know this, the second reason why you need to recognize 
that sexuality is not an inherent component to your happiness. It's to give you hope when your partner does withhold. Again, listen, I get it. I understand. I, I get that it can feel like sex is a need and that you can't control yourself. The desire can be that strong. And I understand how disheartening that can be as a Christian. And by the way, withholding spouses, I want you to hear this point because depending on how your partner's sexual frustrations come out, it can probably seem like they're among the very worst of idolaters who live only for their own cravings and who possess very little love for Christ. Listen, it's not as simple as that. Very often you can come across a Christian who's trapped between two competing desires. On the one hand, they recognize the sinfulness of sin and they understand its consequences and they want to be pleasing to God. They want to stay committed to their marriage. They want to use their body for its intended purposes. They don't want to put the name of Christ to shame. And yet at the same time, they have these other desires as well that they're desperately trying to keep under control and they just don't feel like they can do that. I mean, that's Paul in Romans 7, right? If you're the Christian who's struggling in this way with sexual temptation, it can be incredibly disheartening to think that you're doomed to fail, to think that there's nothing you can do about it, that you're simply destined to ruin and dishonor because sex is a need and you're not being fulfilled in that area. And by the way, again, I understand that thought alone and be enough to make you want to just give up and give in. Listen, friends, it's not true. You're not doomed to failure. You can control yourself. In the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You can resist. Back when I was in seminary, my counseling professor was trying to explain this concept with respect to sexual sin. And I remember he said, uh, people who struggle with sexual temptation often feel like they can't control it. And he said, I always tell them, of course you can. He says, you want proof? Well, then think about what you'd do if someone suddenly walked in the room while you were engaged in your sexual immorality. And you know what he's talking about, right? I mean, a, a couple can be engaged in the very act of adultery. And yet, as strong as their passions may be in that moment, if their spouse was to suddenly walk in the room in that moment, they'd stop instantly. I mean, they can turn off, I mean, just like that, just a snap of the fingers, it's done. Isn't that kind of encouraging, actually? <laughs> you can control yourself. The idea that you can't, that it's all an illusion, is it's just an illusion produced by your sinful flesh in order to encourage you in your rebellion against God. It's not true. I mean, hallelujah, right? It's not true. And you want to know something even more encouraging? Not only are you able to control yourself, but you can even find joy and contentment apart from sex. Again, you don't need it. Now, again, that doesn't always mean it's going to be easy, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be hard either. What do I mean by that? How does that work? How do you learn to find satisfaction apart 
from sexual fulfillment, as impossible as that may seem. I think it's probably easiest to explain it in light of our next exhortation. So let's go ahead and look at that one together. Exhortation number two, recognize that your body is not your own. Once again, if you're the sexually eager spouse, one of the things that's absolutely imperative for you to consider from this passage is that your body is not your own. If you're paying attention, this was also the second exhortation in last week's message as we talked to the withholding spouse. Exhortation number one, I encourage the withholding spouse to recognize that by withholding themselves, they were opening their spouse to sexual temptation. Exhortation number two, I said that they then needed to remember that their body is not their own. The big idea being that because their body is not their own, they should therefore use their body for the sanctification of their spouse by easing their sexual frustration. And of course, we then spend a good amount of time digging into where Paul gets off saying this because this is such a highly offensive concept in our culture today to think that our body would ever belong to someone else. You know, you think about it, that idea can seem offensive for a couple of reasons. One, illegitimate. The other not, the other legitimate. The illegitimate reason is rooted in our own sinful desires. Basically, we don't want to belong to anyone else because that gets in the way of our own selfish desires. We can't serve ourselves when we're committed to serve someone else. I spent the bulk of our time last week explaining how this thought isn't Christian. Christians don't ultimately find this thought of belonging to someone else offensive because the gospel has so transformed our thinking that we want to serve other people. It's not a have-to for us. It's a get-to. This is largely why the world finds this passage so offensive. It's because it doesn't understand this kind of love. It doesn't understand this kind of love because it doesn't understand the gospel. However, that's not the only reason why a person might come away offended by this passage. They can also find it offensive because it can seem unjust. Once again, Paul's focus in this passage is on the withholding spouse. He's engaging them over their reluctance to serve the sexual desires of their spouse, to which he says, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That's written from the perspective of the withholding spouse. That's Paul's counsel to them. Well, if you read this passage in that direction only, then that can seem sort of messed up. It can seem like Paul is saying, your spouse gets to use you however you, they want. And something about that doesn't seem equitable. It doesn't seem fair. It can seem like this entire thing is slanted in favor, unfairly so, of the sexually eager spouse. Like they more or less get their run of the relationship, essentially to use their spouse however they want. But that's not what Paul is saying, is it? The particular application that he has in mind may be that the withholding spouse needs to consider the needs of the sexually eager spouse. But what's the principle he uses to justify that application? What's the principle that gives feet to what he says in verse 3? Verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Now think about that. How does that principle apply to the sexually eager spouse? And you think about it, Paul doesn't really address that in this passage, but if that's the principle that serves as the foundation for Paul's counsel to the withholding spouse, then what does this mean for the sexually eager spouse? Say, for instance, they try to engage their partner, and their partner does hesitate. Say their partner says, can we not do this tonight? I'm really just too tired right now. Do they get to say, no. I mean, 1 Corinthians 7 says, you need to give me my conjugal rights. No, they don't get to say that. Because what 1 Corinthians 7 really says is that the body of each partner belongs to the other. And so it's the Christian's responsibility to try to use their body in a way that pleases their partner. This means that the sexually eager spouse needs to do what they can to defer to their partner's desire to not have sex, much in the same way that their partner needs to do what they can to divert to their desire to have sex. It's a two-way street. Each is trying to prefer the other. You even see this bear itself out in verses 5 and 6. Paul says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I mean, you look at what Paul says there, and as a parent, he's still generally leaning in the direction of the one who wants to have sex. Which, in the end, makes sense, because if the one partner abstains then there's the potential that the other one may fall to sexual sin as a consequence. It's probably harder to say that having sex is going to do the same thing for the abstaining partner. They're probably not in any danger of committing a sin by engaging in physical intimacy with their spouse. So, so Paul sees a greater urgency in fulfilling the desires of the sexually eager partner than the sexually hesitant one. But even still, what's this verse saying? It's saying that there are possibly some instances where Paul might envision a concession in this arrangement. Instances where the desires of the sexually hesitant spouse are taken into consideration. Chiefly, in the example he gives, times of prayer. Uh, like if you can think of something like Lent, right, where people go without something for a period of time, there were similar instances to this in the ancient world when a believer might be inclined to keep themselves back from certain physical pleasures, including things like sex, as an expression of their prayers to God. Paul says, if you want to abstain for a short period of time to do something like that, then I guess that would be okay. But then quickly come back together. Point being, the sexually eager spouse is showing deference in this instance to the desires of their partner. This is occurring by mutual consent. The absent spouse isn't forcing this on the other spouse. Rather, they're communicating this desire to their, their partner, and their partner is consenting to defer to their desires for a period of time. This is what those who want to use this passage to coerce their spouse into sex seem to miss. The principle at work here is not it is not that one spouse gets to simply use the other for their own physical desires. It's that both partners need to be working to use their bodies to serve the other. Now, how does that help the sexually eager spouse 
with their frustrations. I said a moment ago that there's encouragement in this passage. This passage gives this kind of hope to the Christian because it demonstrates that our sexuality is not inherent to our happiness. That's encouraging, right? Because it means that even when their partner is withholding themselves, they can be happy without sinning. How does that work? Well, it works in a couple of ways. First, it helps by taking the eager spouse's attention off of themselves and placing it first on Jesus Christ and then second on their partner. And in order to understand what I mean here, I need you to go back to the message that I gave last week and the principles that we discussed there. There is in the Christian a desire first and foremost to both both know and serve God, which flows out of their understanding of the gospel, and this then expresses itself in a desire to serve other people in the name of Christ. This is a desire the world doesn't have. It's given by the Spirit when the Christian believes, so this doesn't work for everyone. But again, the desires of the Christian are complex in this sense. Yes, they can desire sex while at the same time taking pleasure in the service that they give to others. But what this principle does is it directs the Christian to fix their thoughts on the gospel. When their sexual desires flare up, they're encouraged to redirect their desires through the lens of the gospel. And this not only brings intimacy with Christ, as they experience something of the extent of his humility when they put the desires of their spouse first, even when they do crave sex, but they also begin to derive a different kind of satisfaction which comes from seeing their spouse satisfied instead of themselves. Listen, remember that the scripture says that sexual immorality is an expression of idolatry. That's where the willingness to disobey God in order to have sex comes from. It comes from a worship of sex, this belief that sex is what truly satisfies more than anything else. What you have to understand is that it doesn't matter It does not matter how much one's partner tries to help. As long as someone is looking at sex in this way, it's never going to be enough. There's always going to be a craving for more. And this is exactly what you find, by the way, in some relationships. The couple is is sexually active, and the husband is still looking at pornography. Why? It's because he worships sex. It's an idol in his life. What has to happen in this scenario is for the husband to not only put off those inputs that may tempt him towards pornography, you know, make no provision for the flesh, but in addition to this, he must be working to fundamentally transform his outlook on sex. The fact is, he has a very selfish view of sex. He sees it as something that's there to serve himself. That's why he's willing to objectify other people and more or less use them for his own sexual pleasure. And the scripture says it's supposed to be the other way around. Until that perspective changes, he's going to continue to struggle with sexual satisfaction no matter how much his spouse tries to serve him. In fact, this is why I'll typically tell men who are struggling with pornography, you want to see lasting change in this area, then start serving people. Because at the end of the day, that's their problem. Their sexual sin is just an expression of their self-centered idolatry. And until that changes, they can slap all the band-aids they want on their sexual urges. Internet blockers, accountability partners, all of that. It's not going to work. 
because all they're doing is cleaning the outside of the dish. Where did Jesus say the defilement really comes from? Where did things like sexual immorality and adultery really come from? Matthew 15, Mark 7, he says they come out of the heart of man. That's what needs to change in the sexually eager Christian if they're going to find satisfaction in their sex life. Yes, their spouse can help them with their sexual urges, but what they need to be working on at the same time is fundamentally transforming the way they think about sex. They need to stop seeing it as an opportunity to take, an opportunity to serve themselves, and instead see it as an opportunity to give and to do this as an expression of gratitude to Jesus Christ. <laughs> and guess what, guys? You know what happens as the sexually eager Christian begins to see sex in this way? Not only do they find themselves needing sex less and less, thus easing that frustration, but interestingly enough, they'll probably discover that they and, they, they and their spouse actually end up having sex more frequently. And do you know why that is? It's because their sexually hesitant spouse is actually coming away more and more satisfied by the experience. Just so you know, I don't just mean that physically, though I think that can certainly be a component as well, as this transformed understanding of sex leads you to change even your approach to the act of sex itself from one of taking to one of giving. But rather, what I mean is that as, they, as their spouse sees this care that you have for them manifest itself, not just in the sexual act, but really throughout your relationship, because Again, that's what this fundamental shift in mindset is, is going to lead to. As they see that care on display throughout the relationship, they're naturally going to want to draw closer to you. And before you know it, that affection, which is rooted in the care you've shown them, it may begin to express itself with a desire for physical intimacy. Meaning no longer are they engaging you selflessly just to help you. No, they're doing it because they like you. And they want to. And do you understand? If, if you remember, I said there are all these different reasons for a spouse to be hesitant to engage in sex. What you need to understand, uh, sexually eager Christian, is that many of those reasons may have to do with the way that you're approaching sex. Like suppose your spouse has experienced some form of sexual abuse in the past and they don't want to engage because it causes them to relive that trauma. Well, guess what happens every time you approach sex selfishly, talking about your needs? It just confirms all their fears. You're acting just like their abusers. But guess what happens when you say instead, you know, that's okay, I understand. How can I help you with this? What happens then is they begin to heal. They begin to see that sex can be something different than what they've experienced in the past. And they begin to trust. They begin to see that you're different, that it's not going to be that way with you. And over time, it may make that experience less and less painful and perhaps even enjoyable for them. And isn't this all great, by the way? I'll tell you, personally, I'm always just amazed at how love works in God's economy. It's like whenever we try to seize love, whenever we demand that others care about us, we tend to fall short. But then whenever we stop doing that and instead follow God's lead by seeking to give first instead of just taking, we end up getting the love that we were looking for in the first place. 
Not that we need it by that point, because again, our desires have been transformed where we want to give first. But isn't this just a tremendous bonus, this wonderful gift that we get to receive on top of it all at the end? And just so you know, there's something very Trinitarian in all of that, of this mutual and increasing love that's built as we sacrificially give to one another instead of take. It's just as Jesus said, it truly is more blessed to give and to receive. And so if you're the sexually eager spouse, this is what I would say to you. Keep in mind, Paul isn't writing to you. He's writing to your partner. He's urging them to help you in your sexual frustration. But if he were writing to you, you know what I think he'd tell you? He'd tell you the exact same thing he's told your spouse, only in reverse. You know what I mean by that, don't you? He, he, he's just told your spouse to help you in your frustration in the same way he'd tell you to help your spouse in their hesitance. Don't walk away from this passage, as so many have before, thinking that it justifies the demands that you may be tempted to place on your spouse. Instead, understand that it's telling you, you need to work to put their desires first. You need to try to use your body in aiding their sanctification as well. And that may mean that you hold back a little bit, but you know what? That's okay. Because after all, you can exhibit self-control. You don't have to give in to your sexual desires. And not only this, but you don't need sex to be happy, right? You can find satisfaction in knowing and serving Christ. And there's pleasure to be found in putting your spouse first. Now may God grant you the faith you need to honor and serve your spouse. Let's pray.